Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, and we, not next week, but in weeks after that, we'll get to Abraham, which will take a bit of time because I need to give you a bit of the background of Abraham at that point in time. But there's one more person of faith from the ages before even Abraham, the earliest ages of humanity, who was justified by faith and counted as righteous and lived uprightly, all of which was before the law and without the law. Right? We looked at Abel and Enoch last week. Today we're looking at Noah. They were not under the law. The law had not been given. Abraham was not under the law. The law had not been given. They were justified by grace through faith. They lived by grace through faith. They are examples of where Hebrews 10 closes, which is, the just shall live by faith. That's almost the last verse in Hebrews 10, yes? But, you know, so Hebrews 11 is, what does that look like? Well, here's some examples of how these people were living by faith in God and in the grace and the power and the goodness of God. These people back then, before Abraham, between Adam and the flood, which is Noah's time, were living by the promise that God would send a redeemer who would undo the curse of the fall, he would defeat the devil, he'd free God's people from sin. That's the promise God gave after the fall in Eden. And they looked forward to that redeemer, that that man born of a woman, who nevertheless would be God's man. We now know him to be the man God. (laughs) Yeah? Jesus, the God-man. And... He would undo the curse. He would undo the fall. They looked forward to the Redeemer coming. We now look back in history. We looked at Abel. We looked at Enoch. It's now time to look at Noah. Okay? Noah. These are some nice little headings that some church in the States put together. It's kind of helpful. So here's the scripture. Just one verse in Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, that is the flood, In reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. You see, we're dealing with this, the righteous will live by faith. I said last time that when Cain killed Abel, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve killed the secondborn son, he went away from the family of Adam and from the presence of the Lord and through the Cain, an ungodly line of humanity developed. Whilst through Seth, the third-born son of Adam and Eve, a godly line continued. And that line continued down through Enoch, through Methuselah, to Noah. Lamech in between Methuselah and Noah. I've given you in the notes if you've got the notes. If you haven't got the notes, you can pick some up. You can run now and get some, I don't know. And you can do the pen at the back as well. There was, in these early centuries of humanity, developing a godly line of men and women and an ungodly line, the children of Seth and the children of Cain. Now, we're not saying that the children of Seth weren't sinners, that they were without sin. They were sinners being saved by grace through faith. But the line of Cain were completely rebels. They continued, as Jude says, in the way of Cain. Following their father, grandfather, great-grandfather, Cain. In Seth's line, people feared God. Some 
including Enoch and Noah, are described as walking with God. And they, I believe, passed on from Adam. Adam lived until only a few hundred years before, Adam, before Noah was born. So for a long period of time, the account of creation and of the fall was fresh. It was being communicated again and again and again. The garden, the fall, the curse, the great promise of a redeemer and victor who would be born of a woman. From one generation to the next, they kept hold of these promises of God. But the line of Cain continued in rebellion against God. John 1 John 3 says that Cain slew Abel because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And Jude talks about the rebellion of the way of Cain. It's interesting that amongst the descendants of Cain, there were city builders, musicians, and metal workers through the ungodly line. Isn't that interesting? Maybe our civilization is more a mark of our, what we think of as being civilized, is more a mark of our ungodliness, our self-centeredness, rather than our godliness, our God-centeredness. See, when they built Abel, which was, Babel, sorry, which was after the flood, was that to glorify God or to glorify man? To glorify man. We get to the time of Noah, and those two lines of humanity have now, you know, sadly, tragically become joined. Here it is in Genesis 6 verse 2. The sons of God, which I believe means the sons of Seth, the godly line, saw that the daughters of men, in other words, the, the women of the line of Cain, were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Some people pick up an old legend goes back that this was fallen angels having sex with human women. I don't believe that's the case. I believe it's dealing with this thing of the lines mingled. That's what Scripture's saying here. You can look it up and figure it out. I've given you a link on the notes to go and check that out yourself. And within, you see, it said they took wives to themselves. This was marriage. They settled down and had children. You know, this wasn't some sort of strange let me use the word orgy going on. These were marriages being formed. The sons of God and the daughters of men. And within a few generations, almost all of humanity had become corrupt. Now stop a moment. Have you ever wondered why the scriptures teach that believers shouldn't become unequally yoked with unbelievers? It says in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be bound together with unbelievers. And it's talking about marriage particularly. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, the devil, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever. There are many women in our church and our fellowship who are married to an unbelieving husband, but they didn't marry an unbelieving husband. They became a believer after they married him. And they will tell you that life has its particular challenges for them. For a Christian to knowingly enter into such a relationship, which the Bible calls being unequally yoked, is simply disobedience and rebellion against the Lord. You cannot expect good to come of it because he says don't do it. Anyway, back in Genesis, from the time that those two lines intermarried, God saw the wickedness that was now breaking out as there was cross-infection between these two streams of humanity. God set a timetable, 120 years. Within 120 years, he was going to flood the earth and destroy all of humanity. And the words of Genesis 6, verse 5 to verse 7, I find amongst the most tragic in the whole Bible. 
Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In a world that had gone very, very bad, Noah found grace in God's eyes. He was a direct descendant of Seth and of Enoch and Methuselah and Lamech and then Noah. He's chosen with his family by the Lord to survive a flood that will wipe the rest of the human race from the earth. That's all humans. Everyone. Verse 9 of Genesis 6 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Not without faults. Yes? Blameless in his time. When the Bible uses the word perfect, the King James uses perfect, it means mature. It means sensible. It means reasonable. It means responsible. It doesn't mean that you're without any fault whatsoever. All right. Blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. Interesting, he's the second man in the Bible about him who says, he walked with God. But Enoch walked with God and God took him home. Enoch walked with God for centuries. Like Enoch, his great-grandfather, Noah walked with God. So probably, I had to look this up and figure it out, um, about halfway through that 120 years, God speaks to Noah. It wasn't at the very beginning. About halfway through, because when you look at the ages of Noah and his sons and so on, okay, that's how you figure it out. God told Noah he was going to destroy the earth, but that Noah was to build a massive ark. So we come back to Hebrews. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, a worldwide flood that would destroy all of humanity and every living thing, in fear, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, him, his, he, his wife, his three sons and their wives, by which Noah condemned the world consigned them to their doom and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So for about 60 years, it works out between 55 and 70. I'll figure on 60 in the middle. That's what Noah did. He built an ark. And as he built the ark, day after day after day, he had multiplied opportunities to explain and defend to unbelieving people who came to watch him what he was doing and why he was doing it. So Peter, in his second letter, calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Every day, he was having to justify what he was doing to somebody. He bore witness to that wicked generation. And Noah did well. He believed God's word. He acted on God's word. He told others too. He worked hard. He endured 60 years building the ark. The ark was a massive structure. That one, that people have been building replicas of the ark for, de for decades now. Do you know that? Amish do it. You know, uh, fundamentalist evangelicals in America do it. This one's in Kentucky. And on the day they opened it, there was a flood. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's football pitches long. Yeah? It's a huge thing. Scale model. 
And he did all that because he trusted in God. Noah's righteousness was according to faith. No less than yours and mine is according to faith. He didn't have Romans to teach him about justification and about the atonement and all the rest of it. He just knew what God had said to him and he believed God and he acted on it. And he was justified before God through faith. Before Christ came, before the cross, Noah was justified and accepted by God and lived a righteous life by faith. That's why it says in Hebrews 11:7, he was an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Because Jesus came and made it happen, but he was looking forward to Jesus coming to make it happen. Abraham, when we get to Abraham, did the same. Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He looked ahead and anticipated something that was going to happen. Way into his future. Noah's father, Lamech, died a few years before the flood came. But Noah's father, grandfather, Methuselah, died in the year the flood came. He's, he was, of course, the longest living man at 969 years. And his name, the name that his father gave him, means this. His death shall bring judgment. The death of Methuselah would be the sign of the end of the age, the end of the world, that world as it was then. Non-biblical tradition, outside of scriptures, Hebrew tradition, says that he died seven days before the flood began. In other words, we'll see in a minute, on the day that Noah entered the ark, Methuselah died. And some even say, and I couldn't find any evidence for this, but it's a story that goes around, that Methuselah was actually killed by the wicked people of his day. He was a martyr, as was Abel. In any case, in the year of Methuselah's death, the flood came. There are some contrasts between Enoch and Noah. Let me just list them for you. See, Enoch lived amongst that godly line, the sons and daughters of Seth. But Noah lived all his life amongst ungodly people. Yeah? This whole mix and mess up where everything got worse and worse and worse until wickedness was being celebrated, until the people who were, who were, who were, who were famous for being you know, violent and wicked and corrupt and so on. Sounds a bit like today, doesn't it? Enoch was perhaps, let me put it this way, a bit separated from the world. Maybe he was a bit of a mystic. Maybe he was a bit, a bit of a, you know, kind of away on his own a bit. And, you know, okay, that's fine. You can live like that. He walked with God and God took him. But Noah lived every day of his life, and particularly once he'd started building the ark, with the fierce criticism and rejection and mocking and scorning of the world. Yet he too walked with God and he was a preacher of righteousness. So if Enoch and, Mo, and Noah sorry, both walked with God, I'm going to suggest to you it was a whole lot tougher for, Mo, for, for Noah. It was a whole heap tougher for Noah in his time to walk with God as his great-great-great-grandfather had. Just to finish out the account, and I'm not going to read, read more of Genesis to you. There came a day, this is a little scale model, this, this is a, you know, like in a museum thing. There came a day when God told Noah, today's the day, enter the ark. 
And with his family and all the pairs of animals, they did. They entered the ark. And then the scripture clearly says God shut the door on them. And then for seven days, this is what happened. Nothing. Not a thing. But then, on the seventh day, it began to rain. And the heavens opened up. And the, 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 the fountains of the deep opened up. And the flood began to rise. Um, I've, I've never been out in the, 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 the Middle East, the Far East, sorry, not the Middle East. They tell me in the Far East, in places like Singapore, Malaysia, and so on, you haven't seen rain until you've been there, and, and the tropical rain falls. It's, it's not like being under a shower. It's like, it's like it's throwing down buckets on you. There's just sheets of water that fall solidly out of the sky. It's, 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 it's like monsoon. That's the word, isn't it? Monsoon. You know, it takes a, a second or two to be completely wet, having walked out of the house. You thought it was raining this morning. You know, that's rain. <laughs> This was like the worst monsoon you ever saw. No one had ever seen rain like this. and No one had certainly seen floods like this. After 40 days of rain and flood, the ark rose and floated away. And the flood continued to rise for another 150 days until there was no dry land left, not even the mountaintops. And then, by the way, if you're interested, go and read Genesis 6 to Genesis 9 later on. And then the rain stopped and the wind blew and the water started to recede, but quite slowly. By the time that the land was dry and God said to Noah, you can leave the ark now, they had spent over a year in that vessel. And from Noah's family and the animal life that had been saved, the whole earth was repopulated. Having lived most of his life as a God-fearing man amongst a corrupt and wicked society, Noah, during the time he was building the ark, endured the taunts and mockery of that unbelieving world. But when he and his family entered the ark and God closed the door, I would suggest to you that Noah could probably hear people knocking on the timber saying, Oh, yeah, you're okay in there then. Where is it then, Noah? But when the flood came, They were knocking for a different reason and shouting for a different cause. But it was too late. Jesus commented that until the flood came, people in Noah's time were eating and drinking and marrying and giving you marriage. Which is like, yeah, throwing parties, but just getting on with life. I mean, it's like the world's going on, we're going to have a wedding and then they're going to have some babies and life is just going to go on. Yeah? They were completely normal until suddenly the flood started to rise. And then they went, oh dear, that's what old man Noah's been telling us for the last 60 years. The fatal day came and they weren't prepared despite having been informed. The faith of these people mentioned in Hebrews 11, not just, not just Abel and Enoch and Noah, but the others as well, looked forward to Jesus coming. Our faith looks back. And do you know what? We have more evidence, more grounds for our faith than they ever had. And I don't think we do as well in terms of trusting God somehow. There's some lessons to learn here. We have more, we have more in us than they had in them. Seriously. 
We have a risen Christ who lives in us. We have the Holy Spirit who lives in us and with us. We have more at our disposal, more at our fingertips than they ever had. That's what I believe to be true. Do you think we've got some lessons to learn? Remember why this letter was written? It was written to Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, people from a Jewish background who'd already endured opposition and oppression for their faith in Messiah Jesus, particularly from the the, the Jerusalem authorities, but they were about to face the fierce attack of the mighty Roman Empire under that evil emperor Nero against their faith. And the temptation was to deny Jesus and shelter back under Judaism because you'd be safe as a Jew, but you'd be under threat as a Christian. And so why is the writer repeating these things about Noah? Because Noah endured opposition and even persecution and they were about to... Here's your example, people. Noah entered the ark and condemned the world. So now we come to the phrase, I just want to spend a minute or two on. The righteousness which is according to faith. Noah was an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. That's what it says in Hebrews 11 7. Righteousness is based in faith. We sang some great songs that said some of these things, but I can't stop. Do you remember them? Keep them in mind, okay? I'm not going to try and repeat them all. Righteousness starts with faith and continues with faith. It says in Romans 1, 7. No, it doesn't. It's just it does, but I haven't put it up there. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, this is one of the three times in Testament this gets quoted, the righteous man shall live by faith. We are justified by faith, by grace through faith, not just in being converted, but as a lifestyle. It's how we now live. It defines a life, not just a conversion. We're to be justified in conversion, but also in life. That's the lesson application. Paul's writing to Hebrews, mentioning these three men, before the Lord, before even Abraham. They lived by faith in God. They were justified by God through faith. Through faith were accepted and counted righteousness and accepted by God. Cleansed of all our sins, washed away all our transgressions, yes? But God's grace doesn't just hold us there, but works in us a life that becomes more and more pleasing to him. The grace of God comes to us thoroughly to change and reshape us. We are brought into righteousness. Right relationship with God is the first meaning of righteousness. Having right standing with him, being accepted by him. Not only accepted, dearly loved by him. We are brought into righteousness by grace through faith because of what Jesus has done. And therefore we then live a righteous life, that is to say, we live in a way which is appropriate to now being a child of God by grace Through faith, not merely self-effort. It's still by grace, it's still through faith. Let me just pin a few things down here. Righteousness does not mean do this to earn God's acceptance. Do this to gain God's favor. That is not what righteousness means. That is works, you're earning something. When you earn something, someone owes you. We earn nothing. It's all gift. We don't deserve anything. It's all gift. 
But the grace of God having been received begins to work in us and produce in us a lifestyle which is appropriate to who we now are. We're the children of a loving Father, the great Almighty Father, the eternal God. Righteousness does not say behave so that you will be loved. It says you're a dear child. Now let's learn how to behave. Every appeal, every instruction, in the, even rebuke about right behavior in the scriptures, especially in the investment, is always on the basis of you have already received the grace of God. Therefore. There's always a therefore. And people who pick out bits of scripture which are injunctions and instructions and even warnings without the framework of, don't you know you are, you've died, we read it in Colossians, and your life is hid with Christ in God. If I'd read on, Colossians 3, right? Um, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Listen to this, folks. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is adultery. Why? Because I'm hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, deal with these things. Yes. Master the sin that will c- captivate you, as, as Carmela reminded us earlier. Why? Because you are already a child of God. You are in Christ Jesus. What is appropriate, therefore, to this new relationship? What is inappropriate to this relationship? Righteousness is firstly right relationship, which leads to right behavior. Don't put the cart before the horse. If I may use this expression, the horse of God's almighty grace leads us through in righteousness. Yeah? We don't manufacture something which God then rewards. Not one bit of it. We are led every step of the way by his grace and by his faith. It's right relationship leading to right behavior. Did I do this on the screen? Oh, it's another way. Okay. Right relationship leads to right behavior. Faith leads to faithfulness. Conviction of the truth leads to conformity to the truth. We're shaped by his word. Trust in him leads to transformation of life. God's love leads to godly living. It's in the notes, don't worry. Grace leads to goodness, a moral value of excellence in us. Mercy, having received mercy, leads us to having manners of courtesy and pity and generosity and so on. We we, we learn a, a whole manner of morals, a whole different set of values because of the mercy of God. Here's this other version. Righteousness is, okay, it's a bit wordy. You know I like words, don't you? Acceptance and adoption, that is by God, which leads to, notice, leads to appropriate attitudes and actions as the children of God. You have received grace, therefore. You've been born of God, therefore. Christ Jesus has not only died for your sins, but breaks the power of sin for you. Therefore. Go and read the New Testament letters. Every one of them is full of therefores, based upon solid gospel truth. You get hold of this. Therefore, I will master that. I will deal with that. I'll put that to death. I'll choose this instead of that. That's why the New Testament talks about our lives as bearing fruit. Yeah? 
You don't go and buy some fruit and hang it on a tree and say, that's my fruit. <laughs> It'll fall off, won't it? Fruit is the real deal. It grows. It comes to maturity because there's life in the tree. And Jesus is our tree. His life flows into us so we bear fruit. Paraphrasing heaps of John's gospel there. So fruit in us is the result of the life of Jesus working us. Relationship defines appropriate behavior. Okay? Relationship defines appropriate behavior. Let's think about this. Okay, so somebody's an employee. This person, if they're an employee, I'm talking about the old days when people had contracts and got paid for working, you know? (laughs) Seems a long time ago now. If you're an employee, you've got a contract and it says you're going to work nine to five for five days a week, you know? Uh, You'll be forbidden from taking other employment. This is your only job. You're not allowed to go and get another one. As well as you mustn't drink during the daytime and you mustn't take more than an hour at lunchtime and you've got to follow the health and safety regulations. And by the way, you better work as well, you're right, because that's kind of important. <laughs> the relationship and behavior is defined and it's called employment. Employment describes that relationship. You have a responsibility, you also have rights under that relationship. Think of marriage, husband and wife. As a husband and wife, we have vowed before God, and marriage before God is the only one that matters to me nowadays because we know where the law of this land has gone on marriage, so we'll stick to our law, which is the law of God. We have vowed before God to be faithful to our spouse and to have no other romantic or erotic connection with others. The relationship in, and, and other things as well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll support one another, we'll hold on to one another through through. Good, through illness, through health, and all the rest of it. The relationship and the behavior which is appropriate to the relationship is called marriage. It defines the whole deal. By the way, part two of the marriage course will be coming up from Carol and me in March, later on this month. So, guess what? As a child of God with a Heavenly Father, there is a lifestyle to be pursued a righteous, upright, godly lifestyle, which is only appropriate to the relationship which we now have. And both the relationship and the behavior which matches that relationship is called in the Bible righteousness. It's what God made for us, how he's chosen to relate to us. We are now made righteous through faith in Jesus. Now there's a lifestyle to learn which is called living Righteously. And yet when we hear the word righteousness or holiness, many of us go, oh. You know? It's like, what's the matter? Did did you suddenly get asked to compete in the Olympics and you never trained? What's the reaction for? What, What are you so scared about? God's grace leads us into a lifestyle which is appropriate to the relationship which is formed with us through Jesus. That's the argument of Paul and Peter and James and John in the epistles. Relationship with God the Father through our Lord Jesus and the indwelling and empowering Holy Spirit now defines our behavior, our lifestyle, our day-to-day living, our 24-7. This is not just two hours on a Sunday morning, folks. This is life. When Christ, who is our life, appears. It's not a parcel of life, a bit of life. He is our life. 
Don't you know you're now a child of God? Don't you know that you've been joined unbreakably to Jesus? Haven't you received mercy and grace? Don't you know you're accepted and adopted? If not, go and preach the gospel to yourself. I haven't got time to go to preach all of it again to you this morning. So, if those things are true of you and I, we make choices about what is an appropriate attitude, what are appropriate actions. And we work with what is appropriate. We resist what breaks faith with God and therefore would be unfaithful to us placing our, our, our calling and nature and new nature and our, our being recipients of his mercy and grace. We conduct ourselves as God's dear children. I'm quoting scripture. Children of light, not of darkness. Children of the day, not of the night. Now the thing is, our hearts are still deceitful. And so, for a lot of us, we, 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 we're calculating about what can we get away with. I've illustrated this before about, you know, there's a sign that says, uh, you know, cliff edge, stay away. We go, oh, really? <laughs> we want to see how near we can go. And therefore, when people think the law is something they've got to juggle with, you know, people, this is, people do it. The, if you think legalistically, you'll be thinking, how far do I go before I overstep? And you want to go that close to the mark. Or you get into ridiculous things about piling law on law on law on law and interpretation upon interpretation. So you end up being squeezed into a corner. You can't do anything because the law's, you know, you've, you've, argued it, you've argued yourself into oblivion kind of thing. So people tend to weigh things like this. Is it contrary to the law? Does the Bible rule it in or out? A far better rule of life is this. Quite simply, is this appropriate to me as God's child? Does this illustrate this grace through faith relationship that he brought me into? I didn't, I didn't get there. He chose me. He called me. He put me here. In this place, in this status, in this grace of God. What is appropriate to me now? And what is inappropriate to me now? Paul in Romans 14 says that whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. What you can't do, thanking God and glorifying God and, and being grateful to him for him and saying a little prayer of thanks for it. If you can't give, give a prayer of thanks for it, don't, don't do it, don't have it. It fits the relationship of covenant, love and trust. There are many number of things in our modern world which the Bible does not give us a yes or no to. Drug use, social media, um, you know, all kinds of stuff. It's just not, you know, there's nothing in the Bible about it. No, there isn't, but how do you make a, make a judgment? How do you come to a view about it? By defining, is this appropriate to me as a child of God? Now, when we do that, we might come up with some different conclusions between us. I'm not talking about drug use now, right? Different things. How much... How much entertainment we allow ourselves, whether we go to the movies. We might come to different conclusions. You know, we have to live with that. We have to respect one another. But every one of us has a duty before God to be making decisions. Is this appropriate? Does this fit faith? Does faith go there and do that? We're making those decisions. Righteousness 
which is according to faith, is being accepted and adopted by God. And his grace then leads us to make appropriate attitudes and actions. Faith leads to faithfulness. We're to pursue righteousness and to pursue it by faith. The Jewish people didn't pursue it by faith, but by works. That's what Romans 9 says, but we pursue it by faith. So that in the end, no matter how well we might be doing, and be careful about yourself when you pat yourself on the back, I can't do that, my arms don't go there. You know, it's like, I don't know, too stiff with age or something. Patting yourself on the back, you've got to be a bit of a contortionist to pat yourself on the back, it seems to me. But people seem to like to do it. You know, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm better than them. I'm better than them. Whoa! Whoa, 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 whoa. You've been heading for a big stumble. Pride comes in 404. But no matter how well we may be doing, it's all a gift. It's all a gift. It's God's work. His grace. Here's Paul writing one of his prison letters. He says that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Do you notice this? This is not about his performance at all. It's not about how well he did or didn't do at all. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. When you stand before God, you have, I, you know, like we sang before the throne of God, I need no other plea. Yeah? You don't need to argue anything else. One another old hymn says, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We are justified by grace through faith. We will be saved, even, even in the, the final analysis, by grace through faith, not because we did well or didn't do well. But if we did well, he'll commend us. He'll commend us. Don't be put off by this word righteousness. It's what you've been called for, what you're made for. It's what Christ died for. It's just Not just so your sins may be forgiven, so that you might learn to live a life which is pleasing to God with a clear conscience, knowing his joy upon you, confidently anticipating his reward. The kingdom of God is, listen to it from Romans, righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That should be our experience of the kingdom of God. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And they all come as gift. Not one of them was earned. So righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit is, let me give, give a bit of, bit, bit of an East End slang to this now. It's our territory now. It's our manor. It's where we live. Yeah? It's where we live. It belongs to us. This is our territory. This is where we live now. In righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. When I'm not there, I should be there. So I think, why did I? Why am I over here? I need to get back over there. This is my manner. This is what's given to me to live under the favor of God as a child of God in righteousness, peace, and joy through the Holy Spirit. But listen to this. I kind of have to give you the bad news as well as the good news. Is that right? You don't have to like it. Just, just bear with me. The more you and I live like God's dear children, 
being pleasing to him, empowered by his grace, behaving as the righteous ones who live by faith, the more the unbelieving world will resent and resist us. The more upright we are, the more crooked they appear, and they don't like that. That's why there is a fierce anti-Christian campaign going on. Do you know this last week, two street preachers were, were found guilty of a public, public order uh, um, uh, offence because they were preaching the gospel in open air, quoting the King James Bible and saying Jesus is the only way to God. That's not acceptable in the public place, we're told. Why does the world hate us so much? Because just like Cain and Abel, our deeds are good because they're done in God. God's grace is work in us, but theirs are evil. That's why they all hate us. You think I'm making it up? Look at this. 2 Timothy 3. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That also comes with the territory. We are living, I don't want to be too dramatic about this, but we are living very much like Noah in an increasingly corrupt world where people who get away with lying get to be, you know, yeah. top of the country. Yeah. yeah? And are famous for their lying, and yet, you know, it's like people applaud them. Oh, yes. The great men are the wicked men. It's a terrible time. But we are looking for our day of salvation, the coming of our Lord Jesus. What was it that Noah preached day by day as he's hammering in those great big planks? God is sending a flood to destroy the earth. The only escape is in this ark. What is the gospel? Well, one way of saying the gospel is this. God will judge the world. But there is no condemnation to those who are Listen to the words, in Christ Jesus. Get the comparison? You're either in the ark, saved from the flood, or you're in Christ Jesus, saved from condemnation, saved from the wrath of God. The ark is a picture of Jesus. You, we, your neighbours, your family are safe in him or lost without him. That is true right now. And it will be dramatically revealed as true on the day of judgment. People will be eternally saved or eternally lost depending on this one thing. Do they belong to Jesus? Are they in him? And again, if you want to do yourself a favor, read Ephesians 1 and 2. And all the in hymns there, the recorded about our salvation. In him we have this. In him this is true. In him this is true. Peter, in his letters, draws a comparison between the flood and the last day of judgment. And he says, the first world was cleansed by flood. Humanity was wiped out apart from those who were saved in the ark. The first world was cleansed and renewed by flood. And he says, as one gospel song puts it, no more water but fire next time. This present world, this present age and this present planet will be cleansed and renewed, not by flood, but by fire. And out of that fiery 
cleansing, a new heaven and a new earth will be formed in which we will dwell with our God in righteousness forever. Now, if you go and tell that to your friends and neighbours, they'll go. They'll look at you like, "What? You become a JW or something?" The JWs have one or two things right. The big stuff about Jesus they get wrong. That's the that's the pity. We are saved from the judgment and wrath of God through Jesus by being in Him. It comes back to this point. It's all about Jesus. This whole incident with Noah and the ark. Guess what? It's a little picture. It's an imperfect picture. Not everything about the ark applies to Jesus and you can't kind of argue everything that happened in the ark is applying to Jesus. Animals and so on as well. But basically, to be in the ark and be saved from the flood is compared to, in Scripture, our being in Jesus, saved in this life and saved in the life to come and saved through the transition of the last day and the final judgment. We are saved now by his death and by his life. We are being saved now, being saved now by his life in us. And we will be saved by him. The Lord is our rock, our refuge, our keeper, our salvation, our righteousness, a shelter in what? In a time of storm. One of the songs I, I like, not singing it today, don't worry, is You Are King Over the Flood. Why? Because the flood that would sweep other people away, just we get lifted and carried through it. Why? Because he's our God. He's the king of the flood and he, he doesn't let his children perish in the flood. We used to sing it years ago, kids clapping along. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. Okay? <laughs> Listen, folks, that's scripture. Serious, serious. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. There are times in your life when you need to do some running. You run to him. You run to him because that's where the safety is. That's where the security is. I think it was Tim Keller who once said, though other people have said it many times since, you know when Jesus Christ is enough when he's all you have. There's one or two people, one, was, one at least isn't here today, but there are others in this room. You have discovered that sometime in the last few months. When there was nothing else, but you had Jesus, Jesus was enough. That's why, right into these Hebrew Christians, if you suffer the loss of all things, if you're faced with a life and death decision, whether or not to deny Jesus, Jesus is enough. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is our ark. We are saved and are being saved and will be saved in him, through him, by him. What does he ask of us? Just faith. To trust him. To run to him. To live in him. To obey him. I want to ask you something. Are you a Christian? I mean, a conviction, gut-level Christian. If, why not? Don't you want to be in Jesus? Don't you want to live with him and for him? What's the alternative? To live and die 
for yourself. I don't think that bears thinking about. It's all about Jesus. Beginning to end. You're our rock, our saviour, our king, our shepherd. We are called to live this life of faith. The just will live by faith. At a moment-to-moment level. In fact, the scripture says, don't be anxious for anything. But in everything. You know? Everything. You think, well, does that include? Yes, it does. Everything means... By prayer and request, with thanksgiving, bring your request to God. And as you do that, maybe you don't see the answer straight away, but here's what the scripture says. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. Notice the phrase, in Christ Jesus. It'll secure you to him. You'll find your peace and rest in him. The strong tower, the refuge. Until the thing gets sorted until you see the answer. But you find your refuge in him until the storm passes. Life has its storms. The floods come, folks. But he will carry us and bear us through them. He is our ark. And when it really gets tough and you are doing nothing for yourself because you can't, he is doing it for you. That's what the ark did. Noah sat in an ark with his family for almost a year. And God just took care of them until it was time to come out and get back to work again. There will be times in your life when you, seriously now, can do nothing really, but you can hope and rest in Jesus, and that is enough. What's his word? For I am with you. That doesn't change. Ever. Ever. I want us to stand together and read a a psalm before we get into breaking bread. It's a bit of a psalm. It's half a psalm. Psalm 19. And I felt this was kind of like a response together to say this together. Okay? So... Shan's switching back over to put it up on here for us. We're going to read from Psalm 19, verse 7 to 14 together. We'll take our time, okay? Let's stand together and do this. It's good for you to say the words of Scripture, okay? Ready? The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. 
Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You can sit down again. Thank you. Let's just pray. And uh, will those who are serving come and help us? Uh, two over there, two over there, bread and wine. You know, pray for us. Jesus. We thank you, Father, that in and through Jesus, you make us righteous. We are accepted. We are adopted. We are dearly beloved children of God. And then by your grace and through your spirit, you work in us the things which are pleasing to you. I pray that we may cooperate with the Holy Spirit and with your grace in that process. We will not be somehow uh, foolishly fearful of the words righteousness or holiness or mature. But we will actually aspire to them. It's time we learn to behave ourselves as your dear children. To choose what is appropriate and fitting. Make some value judgments about things. So that we live constantly by grace through faith. We thank you that moment by moment you are ready to hear our requests. Answer us and help us. And some answers are instantaneous. We need your wisdom right now. We need your help right now. Others may take a a little while to work out. But Lord, so long as we are confidently trusting in you, we can settle our hearts before you. That you have heard us. That we are in your hand. We are in your keeping. That we don't again and again have to find the ark. The ark never goes away. We are hidden with Christ in God. Lord Jesus, we do thank you so much for all your great work for us, which we sum up as the gospel. This is all this great work of God the Father, giving his Son, who now lives and reigns with the Father, and yet by the Holy Spirit is at work in and through his people. We thank you that all of God is at work in the gospel for our good, for our eternal well-being. We settle our hearts in you, Lord. We assure our hearts before you that you who have been faithful will be faithful, that you who have been good will be good, that you do not take away your love from your children. You just chastise us when we go astray. Your rod and your staff come to strengthen us and put us back on track. But that in itself is still a sign of your faithful, unremitting love. Thank you, Father, that you care for us with such focus, such passion. And at our very best, we can only ever say we love him because he first loved us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.
Now as we again take bread and wine to commemorate, to again refresh our hearts in this truth that Jesus shed his blood, his body was broken for our redemption, that the curse of the fall, the power of sin should be broken for the children of God. We give you thanks from our hearts. Amen.